Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. What do you think of this trailer, Andy? Were there enough rebels and or causes for your taste? No. (laughs) (laughs) But technically, there should be no causes. So I guess to that end, that worked.
<laughs> oh, you know what? You're absolutely right. I misstated. It is true to the title. It's not like PETA is in is featured in the, in the movie prominently. <laughs> there are no causes. <laughs> yep, we checked that one off. Outstanding. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, there's not a lot of rebelling. And that, uh, I, I guess largely it really is, um, hey, James Dean's in another great movie. Check it out. You know, they and don't even here care. you'll see him in a dark theater. <laughs> and here you'll see him driving a dark car. Right. And Warner Brothers loves to highlight themselves again. It's Warner Brothers, again, lights the motion picture screens of the world <laughs> with the dramatic force and fire of James Dean, the dynamic star of East of Eden, in a story that daringly meets the challenge of today's most vital controversy. What, what, what is that controversy? Did you, do you know what it is? I guess it's rebels who don't have causes. Who don't have have causes. I (laughs) guess that's it. Is that the controversy? It's okay to rebel if you have a cause. Yeah. Is that what they're trying to say? Yeah. If you're going to rebel, have a purpose at least. Else you're a savage teen. It's you know it's a little bit bananas, but we do we we do get a couple of scenes in the movie in the trailer that are iconic, and the first one is obviously you're tearing me apart, right? Which is which is highlighted in the opening sequence. We'll talk about that later. We get some family struggle, and we get that weird <laughs> that weird scene with Natalie Wood and, and James Dean where they're lying on the ground, and she, like, rubs her face against his face, like, nose to lip to nose, and eventually they kiss, and otherwise it's super awkward. I don't know what they're trying to... What message is there? Your lips are soft. <laughs> That's the it message. Was, it was so... Am I alone? It seems like you're not reacting as I expected you to. I looked at no. that. I was like slapping my forehead. That is so weird. It's young love. You know, they're, this is like first kissy sort of stuff. They're experiencing like all those new sensations. I, I guess I didn't. It didn't bug me very much. I thought it was fine. <laughs> Maybe it, it bugged me because they actually look like adults. What bugged me was sensitive so sensitive, its performances will throb deep in your heart. <laughs> so powerful, its story will etch deep in your memory. Oh. As he kicks a family painting, it's really, it's really great. Uh, in terms, I'd love of to hear work- movie trailer voice guy reading these lines. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, in terms of its work as a trailer, did it make you want to see the movie? You know, okay, I was thinking about this because technically it, it doesn't, but what it's selling is James Dean. And this is right on the heels of East of Eden and the just an explosion of James Dean and kind of that that connection that teen audiences were having with him in, in theaters. It, I can understand why they sell it. And if I was of the age at the time and I saw this trailer, I would totally have been ready to go see this. So to that end, I think that they're selling the the selling point of the movie quite well. See, that's what I was trying to make sense of. Like by the time this trailer hit, East of Eden was out. They already knew him on television. And so and and so we knew he was a commodity and seeing him acting so strongly would have been a draw. Yeah. Right? right. Am, am I saying that right? I think so, yeah. I mean, he acted strongly in East of Eden too. Oh yeah, but that's what I mean. Like after on the heels of East of Eden, Seeing him in a trailer come up in there in your local movie house, that's something you would have been excited about because you saw East of Eden and now you want to see more of James Dean and it's right on the heels of that. Yeah, and this was the movie, the only movie in his career where he got top billing 
And the trailer emphasizes that. I mean, this is James Dean as the selling point. The trailer pushes that. And to that end, I think it works. And I think what's interesting, what is interesting about this, maybe that this trailer would have been airing and promoting James Dean before he died, even though the movie had not been released until a month after he died. Right. That's a weird crossover. It is a weird crossover. I was thinking about that, too, because the trailer cutters obviously didn't have that foresight. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah or we James Dean's powerful last Warner Brothers special, special film. <laughs> Warner Brothers would fully take advantage of the opportunity to totally. sell themselves again. See what happens when you're a rebel without a claw- cause. <laughs> rebel without a clause. Jesus. Oh, uh, there is the Rebel Without Claws, which I think is a movie about a cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's not this movie. That is decidedly not this movie. Cue the theme. Bum, 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 bum. parties turn into it's no place for kids a minute ago you said you didn't care if he drinks he said a little drink you're tearing me apart what you you say one thing he says another and everybody changes back again this is the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that right over there is andy nelson hey 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 And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, Jimmy, Natalie, and Sal are having trouble with teenage delinquency this week in Nicholas Ray's 1955 film, Rebel Without a Cause. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy tuning in and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. In honor of the film we're talking about tonight, this week's list will be movies dealing with teen angst. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. Hey, Andy, I'm going off script. Oh, yeah, I, I just want to say uh, one of the perks that we have over on on Patreon is uh, you know once you become a Patreon member, you get to join us for uh, the pre-show live chat for our film board uh, recordings, and we just had one uh, when we recorded our chat on on uh, Beirut uh, last weekend. That's right, yeah, and it was really fantastic. So thanks to everyone who showed up for that, and uh, I, I hope uh, that uh, uh, listeners who are considering Patreon will give that a shot because it's really fun. It's really fun to connect over on Discord by voice and hear everybody talking about uh, talking about the movie and movies and tabletop gaming and whatever you want to talk about. Uh, we're we're all hanging out there for a half hour, forty five minutes before we actually start the real show, and so uh, definitely show up for that. It's it's really fun. Uh, Patreon.com slash the next reel. All right, I'm done. Awesome. No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. This is all going too fast you for me, You better give son. me something. You better give me something fast. 
Andy, uh, this movie has always been uh, equal parts delight and curiosity for me. Um, it, I it can is see a, that. It, can you? I, I, it's it's a movie. The first the first eighteen minutes of the movie, they're in the police station. They're sort of setting up the 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 case for the movie, and I find it a a, a stunningly weak case. Like it's a movie that, on the surface, I should not enjoy because. It is it, it. The conflict exists only because of whiny teens, <laughs> and I find that I find that less compelling than I think other stories. Well, I would hardly disagree with you on that statement. I think I don't think that it's 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 about whiny teens. I think that this is an example of of a parental failure, and that's what we're largely seeing in the opening. You know, we've got we've got three examples of of well, I shouldn't say three examples, but it, we certainly have two strong examples of parental failure, and a third example with Judy's case, um, where it's uh, I guess you could say a father and daughter who are are struggling with the idea of her growing up and becoming a woman, and how does how do they each reconcile that? And in that case, I don't want to call her a whiny teen, but certainly someone struggling with her her growing emotions as she uh, you know. Uh, goes through her her special time and stuff. <laughs> okay. Look, first of all, I think you interrupted me to disagree too early. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't finished yet. Oh, I see. You gotta hear me out, man. Look, listen, I I think that you're right. I, I really do. I think that you're right. But you have to admit and, and uh, perhaps it's because my, uh, you know, now I'm a parent of uh, uh, teen, uh, soon to be teens, is that uh, I I look at this from the perspective of the parents first. Uh, and when I was looking at this movie as a teenager, I, I'm sure I looked at it from the perspective of a teen. And when I look at it as the parents first, I'm thinking, where would what would I be saying? What would I be doing if I were picking up my son from the police station for drunken disorderly? What would I be doing if I were picking up my daughter for breaking curfew? You know, those kinds of things. And I, if I walked into a police station and I saw my son sitting in a shoeshine chair making police siren sounds, I would have thought, this is complete nonsense, right? Now, if I were also Thurston Howell III, uh, I'm sure it would have been uh, pretty much exactly what was on screen. But uh, I, I find that opening sequence on first blush to be uh, a story about nonsense teens. And then it changes for me. And and that's the important part, right? Then the movie changes for me, and you start to get to know these people, and you start to get to know, get a sense of of how the dynamics that are on screen in the first, uh, in the opening sequence, uh, are playing out in other contexts, are playing out on the way to school, are playing out at the observatory, are playing out uh, at home, and and it becomes something that I have quite a deep affection for, uh, and uh, it is, you know, it it ends up being. Um, you know, a, a great favorite film. And I'm embarrassed to say I haven't introduced it to my, at least my daughter yet. She hasn't seen it yet. And I don't think my wife has ever seen it. Uh, and I'm sort of ashamed of that. Because, but I, I still stand by the case that the opening sequence makes a case for a movie that is built on the conflict uh, that is that is weak and only gets stronger through the course of the movie. But it made me question our five-star cutoff. I... I struggle to uh, I, I I can kind of see your point, um, but I also don't think that uh, that it it 
plays out completely that way through the police station scene. I think as we're following Jim's story, I mean, he's drunk and disorderly. We see him as he's kind of, uh, I mean, he is kind of being kind of a, you know, a, you know, drunk and belligerent teen. And his parents arrive and it continues. But I, I feel before we leave the police station, and we'll talk about this in our deep scene dive, I feel like we get a lot more with him and we get a lot more of the complexities of everything going on uh, under uh, you know the roof where he lives. And we see a, a sense as to what's going on in his world. So I think yeah. I, I think we can check that one off as as being, you know, fulfilled before we leave the police station. Yeah, I, I that's a good point. And and I think you're right that and and in fact our deep scene dive like I I'm it 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 I think sets up the the sort of central premise of that part of the trio of that relationship that he's falling apart because his parents are falling apart. Yeah. Um and and I think we get that particularly in the conversation with the police officer later in that same scene. Very valuable stuff, but I also think that that we have to see I sort of feel like we have to see Jim and the teens in this light as the rebellious teens doing the absurd stuff early uh, so that we can get the meaning of and and we can go on this journey to better understand what is going on in in that sort of undercurrent, what is driving them to act the way they are. And and I don't think it'd be as valuable a journey uh, if we didn't start with at least just a little dose of, oh, they're just being dumb teens. Well, and I think that's part of the the idea here, here because I mean, you know, I know they really looked at juvenile delinquency as they were putting the story together and trying to come up with this whole thing, kind of selling uh, middle America but juvenile delinquents. And to that end, I mean, it's you know they're really kind of you know uh, they're not reaching maybe far enough as far as the delinquency that they're doing. I mean, we have, I mean, certainly Plato has been killing puppies, so that's a little extreme. Um, but in Judy's case, I mean, yes, she's just, you know, she ran away from home and is essentially kind of wandering the streets and the police pick her up because they think that she might be, um, you know, looking for a companionship sort of a situation. Um, hers is, I think, the weakest case as far as being a delinquent. But I think when you look at the psychology of what's going on, I can see where maybe they were aiming for uh, as far as with her. Because it's it's that sense of this this rift between a growing girl and her parents, and I think a lot of that came up for me when um, she was having the conversation with the uh, police officer, the detective, and um, and really seems to have this issue with her father, and you get this kind of electric complex sense of her the situation going on with her, and what really struck for me is you know they say can we call your father. And she finally agrees, and then they come back in and they say, "Your mother's on her way." And it's like that, like creates this break in her again, where it's just like you said you were calling my father. That to me was, I think, the for me the key moment that really clued me into what was going on with Judy and everything with her. Yeah, I think so too, and and Judy in particular. I mean, it was it, it may have seemed like a rather anemic. Uh, break for her to even end up in the police station in the first place. I agree with you. It was the weakest of the three, but it was also of a time. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, certainly much more of an egregious violation then uh, than it, you know, than it is today. And to cap that point, I, there's a scene later in the movie where we actually have her, you know, trying to have a moment with her dad. And it seems like such a small scene, like such a scene that's that at first blush would be easy to cut. 
Uh, but I actually, I, I think it demonstrates what you're talking about, the way the father has shunned her when she tries to kiss him on the cheek, right? I mean, uh, it it is uh, seen as such a violation and highlights that, you know, the way she is changing has changed the way he ha- he relates to her, and that whole father-daughter relationship is just torn apart, and um, all because he doesn't know how to handle the fact that she was a little girl, and now she is a woman, and that's just crazy-making for him. And so I, I find that really interesting, and, and it makes her her whole angle much more valuable. Well, and certainly more heartbreaking. And maybe, you know, it's, again, through the eyes of, of a, a, an adult male in 1955, who's the father of a young daughter as she grows mm-hmm. into uh, womanhood, uh, maybe there is a, a more difficult sense of, of being able to kind of accept the uh, emotional connection you still have with your child, even though she's now a woman. Um, I, I feel like maybe today we are kind of past that, but it's still, I can totally see how that could be something that um, might be uh, something for people to struggle with at the time and, and certainly cause a rift as as he's trying to figure out how to deal with it, which leads her, you know, it's that break that she has of, of like, you know, daddy's girl and here she here he is shunning her, wiping off her lipstick because he refuses mm-hmm. to acknowledge that she is growing up and it's mm-hmm. it makes for um you know psychological damage and inevitable counseling that she's going to need as yeah. he grows up well and on the other side of that you know we have this this display of you know, bullying but really you know masculinity and uh you know masculinity and emasculation right we have uh the the chicky run uh, the the daring group of daring boys who are daring one another, even though they really understand this is a terrible idea, this thing they're going to do, um, uh, to drive these cars off a cliff. You know, what what it really represents is what do we, you know, how are we socializing boys? Uh, how are we socializing boys in, you know, in front of girls, in relationship with their girls, in relationship to one another? Um, and, you know, what is okay? He keeps responding. Jim keeps responding uh, negatively to being called a chicken becomes kind of a refrain through the entire film. Um, and and so, you know, it's between this and discussing the relationship between men and women in terms of father-daughter, this movie is is deceptively progressive for 1955. Oh, absolutely. And the whole thing with the chicken and, and Jim and his relationship with his father, who essentially is a chicken and is completely emasculated right. by, by uh, Jim's mother, I mean, that that is such an interesting relationship and to see how that plays out is um i mean yes i can see why some people um might chuckle when they watch it um especially through today's eyes but i find so much power in the way that the story is told it really reminded me quite a bit of um of uh, edward g robinson's character in scarlet street and how he's mm-hmm. really emasculated by kitty and here we have very much the same sort of thing where Jim's father is really emasculated by his wife. And again, you got that similar setup of him in the in the apron, kind of that floral apron and mm-hmm. and having to kind of do her bidding. Um, really fascinating. And uh, but on top of that, we're also looking at this fascinating character of Plato, who largely is kind of I mean, I think that they're my sense is that there was definitely a, a, a little bit of subtext of maybe he's this gay kid. Um, I know that there, you know, if you look at uh, Kenneth Anger and some of the kind of the more um, art house types of films, there was definitely kind of a gay rise in, in cinema. And I think that you get a little hint of this subtext of Plato being potentially gay, 
having no idea how to deal with this and taking it out on, you know, well, and the fact that he also has no parents around, here he is taking it out, he's killing puppies, he has this violent streak that he can't control. I think that uh, Nicholas Ray, in coming up with this story, is doing some really, really interesting stuff in 1955. Yeah, I, particularly around the father. And that's one thing you've got to watch, uh, you, you know, got to watch twice. Um, and and I, I know it, it hit me in reviewing clips again. It only hit me just today. Holy cow. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause is, is really centers on uh, fathers and not the kids. Even though it's the kids who are on screen, the kids are a result of each of their fathers, right? We have one who is totally emasculated, Jim's father, and yet Jim has taken, has sort of subverted that role, and Jim has become effectively the father that he um, always needed. Um, we Plato doesn't have a father, and therefore he's gone completely off the rails uh, and started killing puppies. And uh, Judy hasn't uh, has a father who's pushed her away, and so she fell into a relationship with a uh, with a, a young man who is taken on the role of a father in their little trio. Um, and and so you know that's what I mean. Like the transition that grew on me from the open opening sequence to the final climax of the film, as this this family has formed out of community, out of this high school community, and then been torn asunder by the adults around them who didn't understand what was going on, uh, it, it becomes um, all that much more tragic. Especially as we get to the end and we've got these three kids living in their kind of Neverland. I've, I've read comparisons of this film and these three characters to uh, Peter Pan, Wendy, yeah. and the Lost Boys. Um, right. And that house at the end, kind of this whole Neverland world, um, you get this... this um, abandonment again when Plato wakes up and he's been yet again abandoned by his father this time the replacement father that he's created in Jim and and it pushes him over the edge into this dark place and it pushes him to a place where he starts shooting at people and it pushes Jim to a place where he's trying to he is trying to be the father that his father never was for him only to realize that he you know can't stop Plato from basically running out and, and getting killed. And it's like this lesson that he learns that there's a lot more to being a father than just, um, you know, you know, not being a chicken and standing up for yourself. I mean, you're not always going to be a victor. And I thought that was a really interesting way to tie things up. Yeah, I, I think so too. It, it was also so beautifully portrayed, and uh, you know the the just visual of the film was so stunning. And uh, I've been thinking about you all week. How did you watch it? Did you manage to get the full <laughs> wide screen? I sure did. Believe it or not, Amazon. <laughs> it must be because this one is so much more widely uh, viewed as a big classic, as yeah. whereas East of Eden might be a little classic. This is a big <laughs> one, and Amazon actually has it in the glorious restored. Uh, cinemascope uh, 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 picture, and so I don't didn't have to write a negative Amazon review for this. Unfortunately, I well because or I maybe for, I was looking for it. I was looking for it. <laughs> I wanted to pick it for tonight. Uh, what did you think of it? I thought that Nicholas Ray had as much an eye as Ilya Kazan did in East of Eden. The way that he played with the cinemascope lens and and positioned the framing and did really unique things throughout. I, it made me just thrilled to be watching this film. I mean, from the opening shot, when we get this, you know, low camera right on the ground um, with this toy monkey and James Dean comes down to the ground with us and the whole opening title sequence there to the last shot, which is 
overhead looking down almost like god watching watching these little uh figures as the police pull away and and uh, jim and judy have essentially kind of been forced into adulthood i guess you could say um just and then the beautiful shots throughout i I love the the um the dutch angles that we get like when he's arguing with his parents on the staircase and you've got that great push me uh pull you sort of thing happening there it's it's just beautifully beautifully shot it's just gorgeous and um i know we'll talk more about this a little bit but the the whole idea that this movie was going was was originally conceived as a b movie um and and was reset after they'd already started production i i want to hear about that talk talk a little bit about how this movie came to be well it's interesting warner brothers apparently um latched onto this book back in the 40s that robert m lindner had written called rebel without a cause the hypoanalysis of a criminal psychopath that really was a book about a uh, a teenager who had turned into a criminal and it's kind of analyzing him by no stretch is it an actual novel. It's really just kind of a, a medical uh, breakdown of this kid. But they liked the title so much, so they optioned the book just so they could have the title, which I think is hilarious. Um, <laughs> now, Nicholas Ray, who I find a really fascinating director, and I'm sure we'll talk more about him, um, he was uh, he had been doing a lot of uh, films. I think he had just finished Johnny Guitar and um, was trying to find something different to do. And and he actually proposed this whole idea of making a film that represented these angst-ridden teenagers um, that weren't necessarily like kids from the ghetto, which is if you had teenagers that were angst-ridden at the time, it was because they lived in the ghetto in cinema. Um, so he, um, and at the time, luckily, Warner Brothers was also trying to find a way to tap more into the teenage audience. So they they sent him this book. You know, he didn't really like it, but he um, he he took the idea and he wrote this treatment called the Blind Run. Now this is a funny little bit. It says which opened with staggeringly graphic introductions for its teenage characters, all based on actual events. One teen boy sets a man on fire and watches as his victim burns. Three teen boys strip down and whip a young girl. Two teen drivers race down a dark tunnel toward one another. Hence the title, The Blind Run. <laughs> It's like really graphic stuff. <laughs> Luckily, Warner Brothers like, you know, maybe it's a little too far. And so they, they um, uh, Nicholas Ray, he got a non-negotiable story credit. And then Warner Brothers proceeded to hire a couple writers. They went through tons of interviews with, with you know, people in the juvenile delinquent prisons and judges and juveniles themselves. Um, they started writing the script, Leon Urt. Uris and David Weisbart were working on it, and I guess uh, Uris was fired. He had this whole idea about making this town called Rayfield, in which small-town America is rocked by a rash of teen crime. Uh, that idea and the title named after its director, um, Nicholas Ray, said it made him vo- want to vomit. And so Uris was was hired, and then he, he found James Dean, and that connection really kind of helped him as they started bonding, and kind of James Dean, as we talked about last week, had his own parental issues and then the studio brought in irving shulman as a writer and and they tapped in quite nicely and shulman was really able to develop it quite far he brought in the idea of the chicky run and added the planetarium where he ended up struggling was the climax and and he and ray had a lot of disagreements over that so he was fired and then ray brought in this final writer uh stuart stern who um 
he is the one who really kind of helped uh, condense the script and find the voices for the teens and bring in all the last bits and pieces that the story needed. And he kind of, between the two of them, they had that whole kind of uh, uh, idea of it feeling very much like Peter Pan with these three kids. And so that was really the um, the sense of it. What I think was funny is is um, the two of them had this whole idea that a lot of the film is kind of this fantastical mind of the teenager. And in early notes, um, Ray wanted to form sequences with two simultaneous elements, one that was going to be based in reality and the other based in Luis Buñuel-inspired sequences of surreal <laughs> fantasy from the teenage perspective, which <laughs> I can't what? even imagine <laughs> what that movie be? would look like. But luckily, this final writer, Stern, um, had enough of a relationship with him where he was able to go, maybe we shouldn't go quite that far, which uh, led to the film that we have. Thank goodness. <laughs> I can't wait to see, uh, you know, when Warner Brothers runs out of ideas and actually makes the book Rebel Without a Cause, the hypoanalysis <laughs> right. of the psychotic teen. Because <laughs> that's coming. I mean, you know that's coming. You know it's coming, right. <laughs> oh, God help us all. Deep scene dive, Andy. Ah, let's do it. This is uh, this scene is in the first eighteen minutes. Right in the middle of it, we have Jim's parents. They show up to bring him home uh, again for the drunk and disorderly. It's, it starts right about ten minutes, and it lasts about two uh, about two minutes. Where we have James Dean, um, we have uh, Jim Backus as Frank Stark, his dad. We have uh, Andran Edward Platt as the uh, inspector, and Virginia Brissac as uh, Grandma Stark. Uh, what do you think about this scene? This scene is where we learn that there's so much more going on in Jim's life than him just being this unruly teen that's picked up. This is where we really start to see a kid who is kind of broken because the way that things are happening at home, he needs a strong father figure and his father isn't punishing him at all. His father's just like, Oh, you know, these kids, they're, you know, they, they drink. I can't remember what he says, but it's, you know, he did the same thing. honey. (laughs) Right. He's so, nonchalant about the fact that his son is at jail. And and then you get the contrast of that with how Carol acts with Frank and, and is so, uh, I guess you could say, stark with him. She's very um, direct and negative and, and is very uh, upset and pushing Frank. And, and you can see this, the way that their negative relationship and all the negative elements within their relationship is really pushing Jim to a point where he just can't handle it anymore. And it's pushing him to do these things that he's doing. Um, I think it's a strong scene and it really is kind of that emotional reveal to us as the audience of what's going on in Jim's life as he kind of blows up for his parents before he goes and has his private conversation with uh, the, the inspector. One of the things that stands out for me is just the the smart writing to demonstrate in two minutes uh, just how complex this family dynamic is, right? When you have the mother and father going back and forth with the, you know, and I joke about that line, but she says, you know, can't you answer? What's the matter with you anyhow? And the father jumps in and says, he's loaded, honey. And the mother turns around and says, I was talking to Jim. Uh, right. I mean, those sorts of dynamics. We talk about the, you know, the father wearing the, the feather or the, um, the flowered apron later, but this, this is the seed being planted for that sequence, right? That where the father is just in, in word, um, completely emasculated, uh, to, to the mother. And that's, that is challenging the 1950s family dynamic. Uh, and it's doing it right in a police station, 
um, which is is just fantastic. The the other is the grandmother, I think, which is who's always and and framed in the back of these three. They're like this, uh, you know. We have the father in the front, and the mother to the to screen right, and we have the grandmother in the back, and the grandmother is clearly on the mother's side, um, you know. And and uh, so you get this dynamic where the father is totally outnumbered, uh, and in those sequences, one of the things I think is most interesting is we don't uh, we we don't I think we maybe once actually see Jim in the frame when focused on the family, right? It's usually cutaways back and forth between Jim and the rest of the family, further demonstrating visually that there is a separation between the two. And I think that's just a a really smart, smart cutting. It's also just an interesting, interesting note. I found it interesting that the grandma is actually Grandma Stark, which makes me go, okay, so that means it's Frank's mom. And she's on Carol's side, so she's as bad as Carol. If and maybe that's why he is the way he is. You know, I <laughs> mean, right, he's been right. getting that's it from his more. mother all all of his life. Right. But yeah, right. I, I agree. It's it's a it's a beautifully shot and constructed scene. The way that we we set up uh, uh, Jim as he's kind of buried, and when he's sitting in the seat, I mean, as, especially in his like emotional, you're tearing me apart bit. It does seem like I mean we're, the camera's kind of over not overhead but it's it's higher than him looking down on him and it feels very compressed like he feels trapped and that I think is something that is really effectively com- conveyed in this scene and the mm-hmm. other thing that I really appreciate in this is just the subtext and the way that um, there is so much subtext flying through this I mean maybe not from Jim who is very uh, you know flat out pointing out all of this stuff but with Frank and Carol certainly. And I love the way that the inspector so smartly picks up on that and and brings Jim in to have a private conversation about all of that. And I, that was, I thought, a really smartly put together scene, which I think made for a great connection between Jim and this inspector that, again, is broken as Jim comes back later in the film and needs kind of that adult male role model to help him. And again, and by no fault of his own, but the inspector is not there because he's out on a case. Um, a really interesting way that that relationship again kind of uh, shows how Jim is just not able to get the help from the adults in his life that he needs. I love being introduced to Jim Backus here uh, as as dad. Uh, he is mostly known, I think, as well, probably one of two, Mister Magoo or uh, Thurston Howell the Third. Very much a comedic actor, certainly by reputation. Not funny in this movie. Well, it depends on what I you're looking to laugh at. <laughs> <laughs> you could certainly argue that um, that especially if you watch, uh, if you have a younger person watch this, they might immediately just start guffawing as they yeah. as they see a lot of his scenes. But then I I think that you have to kind of step back and look at what the movie's saying about it because on the surface, yes, I can see why it may come across as funny when he's in his apron and he's dropped the plate and he's, Oh, be quiet. I got to do it quiet. So I don't wake your mother. It's a little <laughs> silly, <laughs> but, but in context of the story, I think absolutely it's, it's, it's almost more heartbreaking really, as you kind of look at it and see exactly what he's come to as a man. Um, and uh, which I think, gives a lot of hope maybe and and I always put a question mark at the end when he is really now at the end trying to sell himself to his son saying you know what I'm going to try to be there for you I'm going to try to be the man that you need me to be yeah um 
And uh, it's a nice connection between the two of them as the film ends and as he kind of also reconnects with his wife. But I also still question, I'm like, I wonder how long that's going to last. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's going to be something that lasts all that long. Uh, and, and I love that you say it leaves you with hope, question mark, that uh, to me, it's it it feels so much like another uh, another loss like and and that jim probably knows that too that he's been yeah. he's been ridden around this uh, on this horse too many times right um, right so i i find it really sad but i i love seeing jim backus in this part and i think he really is fantastic just fantastic um and doran is carol stark her her strength comes for me uh, i mean this scene i think she's fine but for me her real strength um comes when she is is playing the um, the scene on the staircase um, when they're really kind of having it out and and leading to him kind of throwing his dad over the chair and she comes and and grabs him and stuff. Uh, that to me is is the shining moment of seeing mom in her full power and everything. What do you uh, what do you remember her from? Honestly, I mean I've seen her in things, but yeah. I didn't recognize her. She's a face that I, I know is probably in films that I. Have seen like I look back and I see oh well you can't take it with you certainly yeah um, but I don't know um, I mean she had a huge career I just don't huge. I don't know if there's much more I remember her from 376 credits from film and TV for just decade after decade and I I couldn't couldn't tell you hey I mean her top four on IMDb obviously Rebel Without a Cause you can't take it with you the man they could not hang and the strange love of Martha Ivers. Yeah, I've never heard of of those two movies. Uh, obviously, nineteen thirty nine and forty six. Uh, I I just don't know them. I I feel like that's another one of those faces I should be more acquainted with. Yeah, um, uh, I'm mean, both of us. Yeah. yeah, that's that's unfortunate. How about Edward Platt as Inspector Ray Fremick? Again, I I I I think it's more of the writing, but I love how I really find him. Um, reading the subtext going on in the scene and i think that that's just smartly written the way that he kind of ends up playing that character again another actor who i know i've seen before but i I couldn't tell you where i see that he was in north by northwest Mm -hmm. um but other than that i i don't know yeah it's another one of those faces you would totally see what i love about about his role in particular in the first 15 minutes of the movie is that he demonstrates what it means to be father in this scene by taking the son away from the father yeah, right, right. He has a father-son conversation over the water cooler that uh, that the kid is always needed. The kid needed to take a swing at him. He needed to to be the the sort of gentle authoritarian to take the swing and dodge it and get the kid on the ground. He needed to show that that you know there's a relationship other than um, you know son and whelp uh, to actually uh, the, to actually socialize properly. And I think that was it's just so powerful. Not only that, um, but allowing the son to really kind of have his emotional outburst and, yeah. and say, just punch the desk, take it, you know, do what you need to yeah. do. And just allowing that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's really powerful. Uh, Virginia Brisak as Grandma Stark. Yes. Uh, again, uh, she she's only in it in a couple scenes here and, and I think one other scene later, but she was in Little Foxes, which we've talked about. Yeah. Um, she was Mrs. Hewitt. But um, other than that, I, I don't know. This was her uh, her last film, I think. Um, I don't know if she retired or what after this, or, or um, but um, she was alive for another couple decades. So um, 
Yeah, I, I I think that she does a good job with the small part that she has. Camera that that was the thing I was uh, super fascinated by. Uh, I can't imagine seeing this movie in black and white. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, like you said earlier, they were looking at shooting it as a kind of a B picture with not as much of a budget. But then when Jack Warner is like, "Oh, this James Dean kid, he's turning into something. Let's let's throw Warner color on it." And shoot it, uh, you know, shoot it, uh, you know, you know, make it as big and bold as we can. And, of course, that threw uh, Ray into a complete uh, uh, fever pitch as he had to kind of run around and frantically uh, develop kind of this whole additional element of color in the film and coming up with new color designs and um, really just kind of playing around with it, getting the kids into bright colors and putting all the adults in muted colors. Um, doing the uh, the bright red for James Dean, which they said would serve as a, a warning of his kinetic emotional state, and <laughs> and uh, Natalie Wood's red and pinks implying her welcome supple sexuality, and then uh, well, I think with with Plato, his confused sexuality and identity put him in tweeds and mismatched socks. Speaking of of Natalie Wood in particular, I was watching one of the behind the scenes, right behind the camera, on, and and it was uh, this narrated thing. They're walking around showing the on location setup that Warner brought to uh, Griffith uh, Observatory, and this is how the interviewer, the narrator, introduces Natalie Wood. Here's Natalie Wood. The kind of fresh young face and macaroni proof young figure that the industry is always seeking. And um uh, who isn't? <laughs> what? <laughs> like what kind of a lech <laughs> even writes that? And what in all get out is a macaroni proof young figure? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry, Natalie. Oh my! I mean, she's sixteen years old when she was making this movie. Sixteen years old, macaroni-proof young figure. Uh, oh. a- anyhow, get me back on track. What were we talking about? Oh, so Ernest it's a Holler. Camera. Ernest Holler. I, this yeah. is uh, this is what you get when you put uh, when you put the uh, Gone with the Wind guy behind camera in L.A. with Cinemascope with yeah. uh, with Nicholas Ray, who really was enjoying the new tool of the cinemascope um, and really playing with it and learning the different ways he could employ the widescreen frames, uh, cranes, the different angles that he could get. Um, he And I, I guess he became so um, uh, good at the way he employed cinemascope in his films after this that uh, you know, he was a very popular director with the European cineasts, very much somebody that um, they were big with as far as the auteur theory. They started calling him Mr. Cinemascope because they said that his compositions were unlike anything else on the screen, which I can certainly see starting right here. Yeah. And, and what's so funny in our in terms of the deep scene dive, starting right here, just in how he frames these four people in that huge wide screen, uh, it's uh, really smart blocking. Uh, and, and the way we get even to make the wide screen feel compressed, we have this conversation that's going on and we know that Jim's in the corner and occasionally Jim's arm shoots in from screen, a uh, screen left and like pokes at his father and kind of winds around as he's making noise. And 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 the whole mechanism that's going on in the frame is really smart, uh, smart capture. I, I had a great time. Absolutely. Credit for the red jacket. 
costumes Moss Mabry. It's it's kind of become one of the most iconic images of James Dean is what we see here, uh, kind of in the latter half of the film with him in his red jacket and just it's it's on the poster. It's just such that iconic look that uh, that he really kind of created. So uh, kudos to Moss for yeah. kicking that off. And you know what's interesting about that red jacket, Pete? That mm-hmm. red jacket apparently disappeared and was never seen again. And I don't know if somebody <laughs> stole it and has been hiding it all this time, or if that red jacket um, uh, just got discarded because nobody knew uh, that it was James Dean's from this film. Uh, or someone's just wearing it and doesn't know that it's James Dean's from the film. Or, yeah, hey, this see is a nice, look at the nice find I got at, at Goodwill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Check your closets, everybody. You oh, might man. have James Dean's jacket. We talked briefly about how the thing got made. Stuart Stern uh, had the, the screen story, Irving Shulman adaptation. Uh, uh, Nicholas Ray apparently had the story. What do you think? You know, I don't, I, I, I think we kind of covered it already. But what I did want to say is the way that this got credited just goes to show how confusing uh, the Writers Guild is. I, I kind of talked in the in the history as far as how it got made, as far as Nicholas Ray got a non-negotiable story credit for the film. And then they brought in Euless to do some writing. He was fired. They brought in Shulman to do some writing. He got fired. And they brought in Stern to do some writing, who finished it off. Stuart Stern is the one who gets the screen story credit. Irving Shulman gets an adaptation credit, which I guess is for being the one to really kind of tap into what Nicholas Ray's story was about and adapting it into an effective idea. I, I don't really know. I don't know how that's an adaptation but yeah, and then, the, of course, the non-negotiable story credit by Nicholas Ray. The crazy world of the Writers Guild and contractual negotiations. There you go. Wow. And and note, Weisbart, or Leon Uris got nothing. Right, get exactly. get nothing and like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when he came up with, uh, what was it, Rayville, I guess that yeah. was the... The, clo- the door was closed. <laughs> right, exactly. The door was closed. Uh, okay, uh, Nicholas Ray, I, I have to say, I, this is another one that I, I think this may be the only movie I've seen of Nicholas Ray's. Is that possible? Oh, really? Uh, he is a director I would love to do a whole series of Nicholas Ray. And he's a director I would just love to go through and chronologically watch all of his films. Because the ones that I've seen of his, I really enjoy. Um, On Dangerous Ground and They Live by Night are two of his films that I've seen. I've, uh, you know, th- there's many others that he's done that I've always wanted to see. I've just never gotten around to. And after watching this film and reading up about him and just hearing the stories of that, that came out of Europe as far as the auteur theory and just kind of the love they have for him, I'm like, man, he's, he's somebody I should really pay more attention to and, and really look deeper into his filmography. Cause I think there's a, a lot of gems, certainly the ones that I have seen, I have really enjoyed. Was it? contemporary controversy that Nicholas Ray uh, had some shenanigans going on there? Or or is that just what we know in memory? Uh, Nicholas Ray was certainly somebody who was surrounded by some stories. I think that he was kind of um, uh, pulled apart from his kids, from his first wife. I don't think he um, uh, had a lot of time with them. And then I think his eldest son ended up sleeping with his second wife or something. Crazy. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he certainly has had um, some controversy in his life. That was something that I think was big at the time. Um, but I know he was, um, there was stories that, you know, when this film was being made, he was, uh, he had a relationship with Natalie Wood, who was 16 years old, and he was, I think, 43, 44. Uh. So that's pretty gross. Um, 
And also, being a bisexual, he apparently also had a relationship with James Dean, um, and uh, which is uh, it's it's interesting that uh, you know he's you know very much, uh, and I think he was still married at the time. So it's just I don't know what that says about Hollywood or Nicholas Ray, but um, you know he was certainly somebody who was connected, I think, more with the youth and was drawn to that. I, I know that hearing stories about, uh, I guess he had a lot of get-togethers and parties. He was staying at the Chateau Marmont in in, um, in Beverly Hills, and um, he would always have parties there with all of the young performers. They all seemed to come and gravitate to him. And when the adult actors um, would come and join in, like Jim Backus or Anne Duran, they always felt like they didn't quite get it and they felt you know not a part of it and i think it was because this connection that that ray had with the youth which you know it just leaves to gross thoughts and stuff when you hear that and i guess it was so much because natalie was also having a relationship with dennis hopper who's in the film and and i guess that it it bothered ray so much that he had natalie wood's parents tell her to stop seeing dennis hopper (laughs) My goodness. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's super gross. Natalie Wood was 16 at the time. Right. Uh, and uh, she had a she had a fine story. She was not originally targeted for this part. I guess that uh, Ray thought she was a little, uh, a little too adult. Um, she had been, uh, I don't know if she had just been typecast or what, but she said, he said that she wasn't enough of a wild teen character. And then I guess she got in a car accident um, he, he went to the hospital and saw her and the doctor was mumbling and called her a goddamn juvenile delinquent. And apparently she's, she yelled out to Ray, did you hear what he called me, Nick? He called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now do I get the part? <laughs> Charming. Ah, uh, Natalie, you young, fresh face, macaroni proof young figure. <laughs> oh man. Uh, she'd already worked with Dean, uh, before sort of. Yeah. A couple, I think the year before in a TV drama that was called I'm a Fool, um, she was uh, Dean's crush. So uh, they yeah. had a working relationship already. And I think it comes across on screen. I think that they have great screen chemistry. Uh, Salminio is uh, Plato. He was 15 at the time. I, yeah, Salminio just has this amazing presence on screen. I guess, you know, he was, um, he was gay and had, uh, I don't know if he was out at all, but, um, it was certainly something that they played with here. Um, and I, I guess, uh, James Dean talked to him and said, you know, he encouraged him, Hey, look at me the same way that I'm looking at Judy to kind of help create that, that strange, there's this father son relationship, but there's also the strange sexual tension going on there, which is pretty mm-hmm. interesting. I just, uh, I find it so interesting for them to tap into that, yeah. especially as such young actors, young actors, in 1955, it's just right, everything yeah. is out of character uh, about that experience, um, knowing that, watching that. It, and and he marks the third in the trio of really sad ends. Um, obviously, James Dean died in a horrible car accident, um, you know, just a month before the film was released. Uh, Natalie Wood uh, was, and I'm saying air quotes, drowned. Um, uh, in 1981, and Salminio was murdered uh, on his way home from uh, an event in uh, 1970-76. Yeah. He was stabbed to death, right? Stabbed, yeah. I, I yeah. mean, it's just uh, 
uh, crazy. I, I guess you know, coincidence is what it is. I mean, there's certainly no <laughs> no connection uh, other than these three in this movie dying in horrible ways, and uh, I just find it. Um, yeah, it's really like the poltergeist of, kids. Yeah. It's just a weird, weird connection. That's you know, there's no real thing there other than just a you know sad happenstance. Sad end for three people that had such a uh, obviously interesting and deep connection uh, in this movie. So yeah. uh, that was it. Who else uh, stands out for you in the cast? Uh, the only other person that uh, I wanted to talk about, who I mentioned already, was just that Dennis Hopper. Uh, this is his first film, and he plays Goon. He's one of Buzz's uh, one of Buzz's guys, yeah. and uh, yeah, this is his first film. Uh, what was interesting is he said that um, from his perspective, James Dean was pretty much co-directing the movie, but from other people who uh, you know knew James Dean and knew Nicholas Ray, they said uh, really it was just the way that Ray was this master manipulator of his young stars, and he was encouraging their behavior so that he could get the performances that he wanted. But I can see that from another kid who's in the film, you know. Yeah, right. Totally. Um, but you know, I would just say I I thought this was the only that was the only other person I wanted to talk about. But we should just mention Corey Allen as Buzz Gunderson. Uh, Corey Al- Allen went on to do just a, a ton of t- directing on television, and has directed some of my favorite episodes of Star Trek and uh, The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, uh, but also behind uh, some brilliant episodes of The Paper Chase, which was a classic in my youth, um, and uh, Hunter, oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, he's he's behind, uh, he's just name scores across, um, you know, television of, of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, I would say. Uh, so it was just, it's fascinating to see kind of where he went from uh, his, surely it was within about 10 years after his role uh, in Rebel Without a Cause. Wow, you're not kidding. He's got quite the career. Yeah, I, it really surprised me to see all those. So, um, and, and he, he wasn't with any particular show as a regular, right? He was a not so regular contributor to so many shows. Um, and And I certainly couldn't tell you which episodes of these shows in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but I can tell you that the Maquis Part 2, his last episode that that he did with uh, Deep Space Nine, is one of my very favorites of that uh, entire series. Uh, and, um, you know, Journey's End uh, was, you know, a, a fantastic, another fantastic episode finale of Season 7 of, of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. So um, anyway, it, it's, it's, awesome. some, it's great stuff. Great stuff. Absolutely. Great yeah. sensibility behind the camera. Anyway, iconic uh, iconic locations for this movie, so much so that there's actually a bust of James Dean at the Griffith Observatory to this day, as far as I understand it. Which, yeah, the Griffith, Griffith Observatory um, is an iconic Los Angeles location. Um, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to go back in time through film history and say, where was it before this film? But certainly after, I can I can name a few examples. It's it's a great location, and what I love about it is the idea of having this this these kids go to the planetarium and have this guy give this really kind of morbid and trippy explanation of the universe and how man is is you know there's almost no point or I can't remember what he says, but it's just like it's just 
you know, whatever man does is just like meaningless because the universe is so much bigger and, and grander than us is basically right. how how he describes it, which works so nicely when they're getting ready to do the chicky run and Jim and Buzz are talking and, and you know, Buzz is like, you know, I kind of like you. And Jim's like, well, why are we doing this? And he's like, yeah, what else are we going to do? Yeah, it, exactly. it ties in so nicely with what this astronomy guy is talking about. It's just like, oh. you know, it's meaningless. It all, none of it really matters. And I, I thought that that was a great uh, connection with this and, and uh, just the way that it's almost like this, this kind of weird rebirth in the planetarium that we have. Uh, we also have uh, the high school. Now, is this, this is one of those high schools we've seen uh, time and time again. Is that right? I don't know. Is it? Huh. So it's not the, this is not the, like, the uh, L.A. slash Malibu slash Beverly Hills stand-in for all high schools. 17 again was filmed there. Okay. And Rebel Without a Cause. That's oh, all I see. only two. All right. Yeah. All right, is what it is. Yeah. Santa Monica High School is is what it was. Santa Monica High School. That being said, it has quite the list of alumni that have gone through its doors. Would you like to share some of them? Uh, Ry Cooter, Dean Kane. Wow, Dean Kane. <laughs> uh, we've got uh, Robert Down- Robert Downey Jr. Oh, I bet they were buds. Yeah, Emilio Estevez. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a huge list. Uh, you know, sports people. Uh, scientists, actors, a- Amber Tamlin, uh, a new or more recent one. Yeah. Uh, even Robert Wagner. Speaking of Natalie Wood. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I knew uh, we'd find a connection. There's, that's right. It all comes back to Robert Wagner. Uh, and, and what about this, uh, this mansion? This is, this is what LA was. There's just mansions strewn about <laughs> abandoned, abandoned mansions. mansions. Oh, yes. I guess the exterior of the mansion, uh, the scenes for that were filmed at this place called the William O. Jenkins House, which uh, keen eye film observers would recognize as the uh, exteriors for the house in Sunset Boulevard. And then sadly, this place was demolished just a couple years after this movie was filmed. Are you one of those keen eyed uh, watchers? I didn't. You know, it looked familiar. (laughs) It it looked familiar, but uh, I didn't piece it together. Music, Andy. We're back. He's back. <laughs> Leonard Rosenman. Leonard Rosenman. What what I like about it is the main theme, which I think is a strong main theme here that he comes up with. Um, but uh, I, I particularly love the main theme because there's this fantastic album that Petra Hayden put out called Petra Goes to the Movies, in which she does amazing acapella renditions of all sorts of uh, themes from movies. And... Uh, this is one of the main themes that she sings, and it just is great. Her cover of the uh, main title from Rebel Without a Cause just uh, really highlights the uh, the fantastic uh, nature of what Leonard Rosamond did here. I am right now, Andy, right now I am adding Petra Goes to the Movies in Spotify to our show notes. So swipe over to the show notes and you can open the album in Spotify, or uh, the link right above that is the YouTube link of just this track. Uh, which is really great. It's really great. In fact, <laughs> by now, you will have heard a few seconds of it uh, earlier in the show. And you may have thought, hey, I didn't know the trailer opened in acapella. It doesn't. That's <laughs> Petra, because she's awesome, and you didn't even know better. <laughs> Surprise! All right. <laughs> facts and tidbits, Andy. Cue the facts and tidbits. Yeah, just a few uh, little notes. Uh, this is one of those things. When you circle... 
um, elements around a person like James Dean who died in a tragic way and uh, created this uh, cult status afterward. There are people who find elements of this film to be worth a lot of money. The switchblade that he uses in the fight scene at Griffith Observatory was up for auction in 2015 and it had an estimated value, or I think the winning bid went for $12,000 for that little switchblade, which is crazy. Wow. Um, I already mentioned that the jacket mysteriously disappeared. And uh, I guess that his 1949 Mercury Coupe that he drives um, is now in the permanent collection at the National Automobile Mu- Museum in Reno, Nevada. So um, it's it's a film that has, you know, has generated a lot of uh, a lot of money uh, just because James Dean was involved with it. That being said, Pete, there are elements of this film that some people didn't like so much, at least at the time. Um, in 1955, this movie was banned in New Zealand by the censor because they they feared it would incite teenage delinquency. But well, um, okay, come uh, on, this is the you know these were delinquent teens at the time apparently. Um, <laughs> it's but, in you know, the they, title, right? They were but, rebels. <laughs> <laughs> they did uh, release the film the following year. They had to cut some scenes out, but they did release it. Same thing in Britain. The film was released with scenes cut. And with an X rating. Oh, my goodness. It's because Natalie Wood rubbed her nose all over James Dean's cheek. Oh, my. I believe that's what it was, which is so weird because I, I, I don't know, I guess I have it in my head that um, that New Zealand is actually, has historically been more forgiving than, and, and less sort of, what's the word, puritanical uh, than other senses. Maybe I'm thinking about this all wrong. That's because they're all vampires, Pete. <laughs> You just saw that movie. I did. Oh, um, good. I'm so glad. Oh, now we can, we can speak again. But you know, the, the movie did, it was a very inspirational movie for artists um, because of the James Dean connection, because I think a lot of artists grew up at the time when this film really um, uh, hit home for them. Um, I mean, there are so many songs that we could point to from American Pie to... Uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, rebel without a clue. Uh, what's the the great into the great wide open that uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers sing um, to uh, you know Kid Rock, uh, Devil Without a Cause. I mean, it's just it's become like such a an iconic uh, pop culture reference that uh, that people are are you know going through all the time. It's it's everywhere. Um, even you know our friend uh, Tommy Wiseau. You're tearing me apart, Lisa. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, sadly, uh, that uh, that did get included. But uh, it's you know ad infinitum. The uh, the um, the references will continue. <laughs> okay, let me just say first of all, well played, Andy. Second, uh, rebels without applause. Rebels without applause. That may be my favorite one. Applause. That's, uh, I, yeah, what I about the rebel? Is- the rebel without claws. I think. <laughs> fantastic i'm still set Uh, on that i'm gonna have to watch that one now (laughs) how to do an award season Uh, it seemed like it was a little film at the time it had two wins and six other nominations um over at the oscars it did get three nominations um sal minio was nominated for best supporting actor he lost to jack lemon in mr roberts natalie wood was nominated for supporting actress Uh, we talked about this last week because she lost to joe van fleet over at east of eden and uh, no nomination for James Dean for this film. His nomination was for uh, East of Eden. The other nomination here was for Nicholas Ray. And this is that weird thing about the story again. So he got a nomination 
because he it was for best writing motion picture story because he came up with the story he got that non-negotiable credit and he's the one who gets the nomination but he didn't win it went to love me or leave me uh, written by daniel fuchs so so strange i don't fully understand but again those were the nominations um it did uh in 1990 though it did get added to the library of congress's national film registry as being deemed culturally historically and aesthetically significant so there you go you know what this movie is called, if you, it's from the perspective of Sal Mineo's character, as he's dying on the steps of the Griffith Observatory, bleeding out from a gunshot wound. Oh, dear. Do I want to know? Rebel without some gauze. Oh, boy. Wow. Do you know, it's these little strokes of genius, <laughs> Andy. It's just the little strokes. It, it is. It is. really is. <laughs> I noticed you didn't put that one in your list of inspirations, but I just wanted to make sure that that was, that was documented somewhere. Uh, some guys. Oh, boy. <laughs> How'd it do in the box office? Uh, well, Nicholas Ray's film cost $1.5 million to make, which is about $13.5 million in today's dollars. The movie had its world premiere in New York City on October 26, 1955, 26 days after James Dean's tragic death. Perhaps for this reason, or because it struck such a chord with teens of the day, or because it was actually a good movie, it opened across the country the next day as a huge success. It went on to make $4.5 million at the box office, or $40.4 million in today's dollars. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $242,703. Even though I couldn't find the numbers for East of Eden, that film still seemed to do better at the box office than this one, according to uh, that 5 million box office receipts number that I did find. That being said, neither of these films did as well as the number one movie of the year, Pete, Cinerama Holiday. That's right, Cinerama Holiday, a travelogue film designed specifically to showcase the wonders of the Cinerama format. (laughs) Anyway, Rebel was a success and certainly propelled Dean into his own stratosphere. That's fantastic. When are we going to get Cinderama Holiday Holiday. on the list? (laughs) That's got to be part of a series. Travelogue films. Mm. Boy, that'll be fun. Our top five Arama movies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Andy. All right. Well, I think it's probably time right now for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our list of movies that we've talked about on this show. Uh, or you just swipe over in your show notes and tap flickchart. It'll take you right to this movie where you can add it to your very own list. We'd love to hear how it stacks up against ours. What's up? All right. First up, we have Rebel Without a Cause or Numi, the girl with the dragon tattoo. I am Rebel Without a Cause, please. Out of the gate, it's a tough one with, with the girl with the dragon tattoo. I got to tell you. Yeah, I, I agree. I'll give you Rebel though. I feel like you know I can see this one living in the first half, first the top half. That's that honestly. That's that's my decision here. It's really yeah. a tough call, but I I just believe this needs to be uh, in the top half. Rebel without a cause, or live free or die hard. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to go with with John McClane on this one. I, I'm gonna go with John McClane too. Rebel without a cause, <laughs> I know, or Beverly Hills Cop. I'm gonna say Beverly Hills Cop. Got it with a banana. I don't know if I'm 100% sold on that because I feel like I had more issues with it this time. Yeah. But yeah. it is a fun film. I uh, uh, I think I am I think I'm rebel on this one. Yeah, I'm waffling now. Now I'm now I'm regretting my choice. Let's, I think uh, I'll go well, with I'm rebel. Gonna, I, I'm going to take you to the mat. No, any, I'm going to say rebel. No, I think we should do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Okay. All right, let's go. What's next? <laughs> rebel without a cause or the Wizard of Oz? 
Ooh, nice rhyme. Wizard of Oz for me. I get excited about these little things. There's a joke. There's a joke coming. It's just not fast enough. All right. Wizard of Oz. Rebel without a cause or the big Lebowski. Lebowski for me. Oh, so rebel. So rebel. Let's go. All right. One, One, two, two, three. three. Paper. Paper. Rock. Paper. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, that's what the that was the sound of you losing. <laughs> that was when you said, "Oh, yeah, you." Oh, yeah. rebel without a cause or das Boot. I'm going to say das, das Boot. Boot. Rebel without a cause or Wild Tales. Oh, I don't know. I am torn. I'm going to say Wild Tales, though. Really? Yeah. Okay. God. You can take me to the map. No, I just don't know if I. I just don't know if I want to. Those were some weird tales. I think I think we they ended were wild. Up really liking those. I, I really liked them. Okay, all right. I'll go wild wild tales. That's good. That okay. uh, that wedding was a mess. That <laughs> was really a mess. <laughs> Rebel without a cause or Glen Gary Glen Ross. <laughs> Glen Gary Glen Ross. See what I did? <laughs> I'm trying to build the rhyme into no, it. That's good uh, because yeah. yeah, that's that's what they're Wizard saying right now in. Um, Oh, here it comes. Here's that joke you're trying to do. It was was going to be way too many layers. There was like hat on top of a hat, maybe on top of a couple of layers of onion, and then another hat. That's what it would have taken to understand my joke. Oh, I want to hear it now. It was all about (laughs) flipping real estate and subprime loans in Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just let that hang there if anybody could figure out where I was coming from. Okay. Uh, What would you like to do next? (laughs) Gary Glenn Ross for me. Yep, same for me. Rebel without a cause or Star Trek Nemesis? I I will say Rebel uh, here. I do like Nemesis more. I have more appreciation for it, but I'm still going to say Rebel here. Yeah, definitely Rebel. Well, that lands Rebel at 119 on our flick chart. 119 out of 350. That puts it... It's just over the 50% mark at uh, 66%. So it's, uh, you know, it did pretty well for itself. How did it do on your personal flick chart? Almost the same percentage. Uh, 1380 out of uh, 3948, which landed it at 65%. I think that this is a sign that my flick chart may be broken, although I'm not too depressed about this. Uh, this landed at number 64 out of 1,020. Wow. So it puts it at 94%. I don't think... I, um, hey, it's a good movie. I don't think there's anything... There's nothing wrong with liking it, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, that, that's really not it. it it's that, it, you know, there are movies that are uh, further down the list that definitely I would rank higher than this movie. Uh, and that is just the flick chart curse. Like, it just didn't happen to hit those movies. And you need to do some re-ranking you do? on your chart. Re-rank your Start face. at number one and just go to the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so there you go. Higher on mine than yours. If I were to go by the algorithm, this would be a four and a half stars uh, film on my uh, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. What do you think? Is it? I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. You want me to tell you what it is for is you? That where, where would you? Where would I'm you putting put it? it at four stars. Uh, I think that there's a lot of strength uh, with the film. 
Um, I, I feel like there, you know, as much as I really appreciate what Nicholas Ray is doing here, I do feel there are some elements that date it a little bit for me. But on the whole, um, I had an incredible time with this film. So I think a four star and a like is a good place for this. It could go up on future viewings, though. I really did enjoy it. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's right. I think it's a four star uh, film for me. And mostly on this viewing, it went up in my esteem just because of how weirdly progressive and timeless so many of these issues are uh, as much as um, and that's why I brought up earlier the the five-star cutoff because this movie didn't start as a five-star film for me you know it starts at about a three-star and goes up from there um, and and that's kind of fun um, you know to sort of feel like I'm getting more and more into the film like it's not losing anything I'm actually taking stars that other movies have lost and I'm donating them. <laughs> this is this is that half star that uh that yeah. Jim Carrey movie lost for its its bad yeah. title poster design. Uh, I'm gonna give that here. Yes, because of the R, the dark thing. Yeah, it was the reversed R. That I'm gonna go ahead and give it from three and a half to four to Robert I like that idea that there's because a there's a finite the number R's. of stars out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Bitcoin. Right, exactly. That's what it is. All of these these are bit stars. <laughs> oh, that's good. Andy, this is a new thing. I maybe we need to start a blockchain. <laughs> we should we should find a way to make money off of this. I it, I'm telling you, these are gold these ideas. They are gold. There are a finite number of stars. And you just have to place them right. Exactly. Don't get cocky. <laughs> All right. Where do we go from here? Well, this is uh, the middle of our James Dean series, and sadly, next week's film is the end. It's the final film that he uh, had just finished shooting before, or I think that he was, uh, I think he had just finished shooting, but the film was not finished shooting, um, and that was George Stevens' 1956 film, Giant. We're going to be talking about that next week. But don't worry, it's as long as three movies. <laughs> it really is. It is. It is Giant. It fits the title nicely. It is Giant, yeah. Yeah. We got the Saturday matinee thing coming up, uh, uh, Andy, for our Patreon uh, subscribers, a special Saturday show. Uh, I'm actually not going to be there this week, but I do think we should start talking about what we want to talk about on the show. What's our list going to be this week? Well, this week we already said, it, it, tying into our show uh, with James Dean, we're doing teen angst. But but mm-hmm. next week for, uh, for Giant... I think that uh, you know we should start uh, talking about ideas here, and then throw those ideas out to our our uh, Patreon supporters over on Discord, and then they get a vote on it. But what are some ideas? What do you think we should do for Giant? Well, let me tell you. Uh, here's what I can't contribute. I still haven't seen the movie. Remember, this is the one movie of his that I haven't seen. I hear you, and you know what? I'm a non-contributing. But you zero. know what? I think that we could do as one of our options: hmm. films with giants. <laughs> <laughs> That, I'm going to take that one. Thank In you. no way does that tie into the movie at all. But hey, why yeah. not? <laughs> I think there. I've seen some still images of, of James Dean sitting uh, and looking sweaty. We could do movies that are filmed in places that are hot. So with giants and hot places. <laughs> well, it's it's he's a he's a um, uh, a rancher. Uh, well, there's um, him and Rock Hudson and yeah. oh, uh, I nailed uh, it, Elizabeth Ranchers Taylor. Yeah. And um, this kind of this whole Western ranch vibe that they have. Uh, um, I think that uh, we could do films that deal with oil because certainly oil plays in big as um, as uh, uh, James Dean's character uh, strikes oil. 
So okay. we could do so somehow we could tie in oil. You know, we could do films that uh, that deal with um, you know people striking it rich because of oil. I like that. Certainly can think of movies that that help or, or that answer that. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. And what else? There's just the, the idea of, or what about just big, you know, I, I, it might be too broad, but we could just do big Western epics. Epic Westerns. Yeah. I feel like those are a little bit non-specific, but, you know, maybe but that's, that's kind of, of what challenge. we want for our, because yeah. remember right. when we did stamps and it, it was so specific, <laughs> films involving stamps and, uh, yes. you, you know, you really end up limiting yourself to a few films. You know, although that's really where some of our our most glorious cheating started, which ah. was the works of Terence Stamp. <laughs> yes, you you are correct <laughs> with that. All right. Anyway, I think that's great. So we'll post those over on uh, Discord and get some folks thinking about them, and uh, see if we get some good contributions over there. And that will be for next. Not this coming Saturday, next Saturday's conversation. And for those of you who are tuning into this and want to contribute to uh, to this vote, uh, yeah, head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. And, uh, you know, for as little as a, a buck a month, you can uh, be a part of all the fun. I don't even think you have to do anything. You just sign in, sign up over there, and you're automatically in our Discord. You just, you just are there, like magic. Wow. There's a link, you just are there. It's fantastic. It is magic. Yeah, it's technology. Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart. He runs the Instagram program and Ben Steerick helping out over there. Ben Lott of The Blot Spot runs all things on Twitter. And the Next Reel theme, Ragtime Instrumental, can be found over on the SoundCloud page of the good and kind Eli Catlin. You should check that out. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Now, there are only two pages of one-star reviews on this movie, out of nearly 500 total reviews on Amazon. But those two pages do yield some gold. Oh, yes, they do. They do. One whole star of gold. These are people who do understand the next real gold star economy program. (laughs) (laughs) They're saving the rest of their stars for other movies. Uh, why uh, Why don't you kick us off? I've got a one star by Hinkle Goldfarb, who has the best best Amazon reviewer name thus far. Hinkle Goldfarb, who says, only one problem with this film. It sucks. Alternative titles for this film should be Rebel Without a Plot or Phoniness Without a Cause. I can't decide which one is more accurate. It's a tough call. During the film, I never got the feeling that this was even a half-hearted attempt at describing real life. The fact that this false, artificial, self-involved movie was a touchstone for a generation of the same qualities should tell you something about the decline of our society, and not just the decline of Hollywood filmmaking. Hinkle hitting where it hurts. Hinkle does. But at least Hinkle got into the the alternate title game. I noticed nothing in here as as good as, uh, you know, Rebel Without Some Cause, but okay. I got a uh, one star by viewer who says, this movie is crap. This movie sucks for so many reasons. I can't fit them all in the 1,000 word space that Amazon gives me. 
For starters, I'll give my impression of the three lead characters after watching this movie. Natalie Wood's character is bipolar, and Salminio's character is a little on the gay side. To make it worse, the plot is boring, unrealistic, and inconsistent. Oh yeah, and where does this image of James Dean wearing a leather jacket come from? Although it was even shown on the cover of this DVD, he doesn't wear a leather jacket in any of his three starring roles. And to think... There is actually a James Dean brand of leather jackets with his face on the inside of the jacket. It's a conspiracy. Wow, you did a really good job of like <laughs> amping up the the anger and the frustration as you read that. It was, it was great. I was, you know, because I don't think that viewer actually cares as much about the movie as he does about the, the <laughs> leather jacket thing. And I felt like that's where we really need the power. We really need to, to get into it. Uh, so, you know. Um, the, the only one comment we have is, uh, to this is, uh, the Plato character was supposed to be gay and Dean wore leather jackets in real life. <laughs> so. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I just, you know, I appreciate the, the people put their heart and soul into this. That could have been you, Andy. That could have been you. It could have been. This I, whole CinemaScope thing. It could have been. Amazon could, is lucky. You could They are lucky they did it right. <laughs> Tear their pages apart, Andy. Tear them apart. Oh, you don't want to start. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.